Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining the QI Chat Room podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Pena. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Aliados Health, an association of community health centers across six counties in Northern California. We seek to bring you relevant topics from the health center, focusing on sharing best practices and new information related to the quality improvement at community health centers. Uh, we've been hosting this podcast since the fall of 2019, and we hope you'll join us as we share the latest in health topics. Today's episode features a mobile and street medicine conversation with Jocelyn Bereda, co-founder and executive director of the Botanical Bus, and Miriam Parker, DDS MPA, and the chief uh, dental officer at Lifelong Medical Care in Berkeley. So I'd like to take some time to introduce our panelists for today's podcast. Jocelyn Bereda is a community organizer, herbalist, and granddaughter of an indigenous farm worker. She is committed to cultivating health equity through culturally centered care. Before co-founding the Botanical Bus, Jocelyn organized weekly bilingual bicultural wellness workshops with Cultivando para Salud at Land Paths Bayer Farm and worked as a clinical herbalist at Pharmacopia for four years her activism has roots in 10 years working as program director of the global exchange Fair Trade Stores. Jocelyn holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in cultural anthropology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and certification in herbalism from the California School of Herbal Studies. She believes that herbalism is activism. It shows us that we are connected to the earth, that we know how to heal ourselves, our families and our communities with the plants that grow around us. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for joining us today. And I am also a former gaucho, so go gauchos. <laughs> I also went to UCSB. Um, so fun fact, um, Dr. Miriam Parker uh, has been a practicing dentist for over 27 years. At the beginning of her career, she had extensive experience in the private sector providing comprehensive digital dental care, including cosmetic, implantology, and orthodontic care to thousands of patients during that time. Dr. Parker has also practiced dentistry on five continents in her 27 years of practice. Those experiences have taught Dr. Parker that the practice of great dentistry is a universal language. Patients who sense your positive energy and your results look amazing, we'll trust you. Dr. Parker's work around the globe allowed her to rethink her career path. And in 2009, she became a dental director of an FQHC in Flint, Michigan. There she led the expansion of the dental department from 12 chairs to 29 and three locations. She initiated a collaboration with the University of Michigan and the University of Detroit Mercy D4 students CBDE programs and developed a CODA accredited two-year AEGD program in collaboration with NYU Langoni in 2012, which is still in existence. During her leadership, the clinic provided specialized dental care by five of the 12 dental specialists in addition to general dental care. Additionally, the clinic conducted research that was published and benefited the clinics. Presently, Miriam Parker is the Chief Dental Officer at Lifelong Medical Care in Berkeley. In 2021, Dr. Parker partnered with uh, their street medicine 
team to provide dental care for the mobile dental van uh, to some of the unhoused patients living in encampments in West Oakland. In August of 2023, Lifelong will expand street dental care to Berkeley. Additionally, she has been awarded a 275,000 Delta Dental grant for a second round of funding to collaborate with Howard University College of Dentistry in Washington, DC. This grant allows Lifelong to bring five groups of four underrepresented, I'm sorry, underrepresented D4 dental students to the Bay Area for four week rotations to provide dental care to Lifelong patients. This has allowed Lifelong to expand its access to care for its patients. The D4 students care for their patients under the direct supervision of their dentists at the school-based clinics, a mobile dental van and brick and mortar clinics. Thank you so much uh, both to Jocelyn and Dr. Parker for joining us um, to share more about their mobile and street medicine programs that they support and lead work in. I would love to start the conversation uh, by asking if you could both share a little about the mobile medicine programs that uh, you're sharing about today and the model of care that you provide, including you know, the services that you provide through these programs and how it's staffed. Dr. Parker, shall we start with you? Sure, um, thank you for having me. So we actually get our patients through um, our street medicine team. Our street medicine team has been in existence since 20, I think 2019. Our street medicine team provides um, medical care. They have behavioral health specialists, case managers, nurses, physician's assistant, and they do have access to an MD. A big part of our strategy in joining the street medicine team was having integration of care, like continuing that model. And so we thought the best approach for us to come into that arena was through their referral. So patients that had some level of stability, who had seen the medical team first, if they needed some behavioral health stability, that a lot of, much of that had begun, and then they were referred to us. So we go out to the same sites that the street medicine team has already been established. So we weren't starting off from zero and that they got a sense of the integration of care. So a lot of times when they see the van, patients will come up and say, how can I get on the van? And we always tell them that the road to entry is they speak to the medical folks because there needs to be oftentimes the patients need to be stabilized. They need to have their medical health examined. Um, and we want to encourage that. And so we thought the best way to do that was to have the port of entry to be medical. So that's how we approached street dentistry being incorporated with our already established street medical team. Wonderful. And how often does a street medicine and dental team um, go out to communities? So we presently go out once a week, and we, when we initially started, it was once a week, uh, so four times a month, 
uh, more or less. But what we found is that community is unpredictable because their lives are quite different. And, you know, they're dealing with things that are a lot more fundamental than most of us are dealing with. And so making appointments as much as we really still stick to that, the no-show rate is quite high, even though we're going to where they are. Sometimes we can't find them or, you know, they have other priorities. So you would think that if someone's pulling up in front of your house, that they, that you would have, you would be there and you'd be available, but that's not necessarily the case. So that, that was something that was surprising. There's sometimes when we come and they just don't want to, like, they, they don't have the capacity, they don't have the mental capacity today to deal with going to the doctor. So those are realities that happen even when you aren't unhoused. You don't feel like going to your appointment. It's really great that the dental street medicine program is integrated into the medicine street medicine program where medical, more general medical care is provided. Um, but you brought up a good point about, you know, sometimes patients are just not engaged. There's other things going on. I'm not sure if you mentioned, but can you speak to if there's a behavioral health component to the street medicine integration? There is. So as those of us who are in healthcare know that behind substance abuse is mental health issues. And a lot of folks that are unhoused are folks on the spectrum of needing behavioral health and then also having a substance abuse problem. And it can be from sniffing glue to alcoholism to all the other things people can inhale. So there's like a spectrum of that. Um, so we realize that behavioral health is primary to really being able to help a lot of these patients and realizing it's a really slow process. A lot of trust has to develop so that they really believe that you mean well by them. Because I think for a lot of our patients, their lives have been um, very difficult and a lot of distrust has happened in their lives. So by the time they get to dental, a lot of that has been um, resolved, but we understand how delicate that is. So when they come on the, on the van, the dental van, sometimes it's just having a conversation. And sometimes the patients come on and they want to see where we are. They'll sit and talk. I usually sit and talk to them in the front of the bus first. And then I have them wash their hands because having access to clean water is a challenge. I repurpose a denture brush because denture brushes are, they have hard bristles and they really enjoy being able to scrub their hands. And sometimes I even will scrub their hands for them if they, you know, quickly wash their hands. And I go, no, really, you, you can clean up your hands. You'd be surprised. So things kind of have developed by at a necessity. And then a lot of people, their faces aren't as clean as they should be, but because I'm the dentist and I'm, you know, have such a close and intimate relationship with you, I'm, I'm in your face. So then we give them a warm towel. I was on a trip coming back. The service provided a warm towel. And I remember the refreshing feeling that it felt like. And I thought, I think I could offer that to the patients I serve because it was such a 
relieving um, sensation to have a warm towel on your face. And so we ended up buying, you know, the baby wipe warmers. And then we found a company that makes uh, a bamboo aloe cloth. And so we, and they're individually packaged. So we put those in the baby warmer. And so we have them wash their hands and then they wash their face with this warm cloth. Everybody looks forward to it. The patients that we have that come in there, they look and go, well, do I get a cloth today? <laughs> so it's become something that they really look forward to. And the cloth, the, the aloe is, when it's warm, it's so soothing. And I'm telling you, sometimes they'll wash and they're like washing here. They'll stick it inside their clothes and they go, do you have any more of these? That's become quite popular. <laughs> People say, and, and then we let them brush their teeth before they we start. And so those are the things that we do to um, continue that trust and to know that they're safe and that we're going to do what they can tolerate today and move at a pace that's comfortable for them. So that's how we've learned to approach the population we're serving. I really love that. What a beautiful way to engage patients. And uh, it's a take on incentives, right? It's like, what a, a beautiful way to incentivize them to keep uh, coming back and a way to, you know, just that human touch and that human interest and acknowledgement that they are important. Just and, so beautiful. Dr. And Burton. that's what I was surprised to discover. I can remember early on when I, it was just the whim to start letting them wash their hands. And I said, let me help you. So I was scrubbing their hands and we were talking. And one of the, and the patient said to me, you know, I haven't had anybody look in my eyes in so long. And it, it's true when you become someone that's unhoused, you become invisible, you become ignored to think of all of the things that give us dignity. And one of them is someone looking you in the eye and having a conversation with you and how so many of them have lost that. I have some that get on, I had someone last week who got on the van and he wouldn't look me in the eye at all. The whole time I talked to him, he, he had his head down. And I think that speaks to the things that you lose when you, become disengaged from society at large and that there's this whole population of folks who are in that space and why substance abuse continues to be what they use to soothe that emptiness. So it's a really good connection to make and a good point. One other question around more of this infrastructure of the dental street medicine program and um, can you share a little bit about who makes up the care team? Like how many dental assistants? Like what is the infrastructure of, right. of who's going out into? So it's myself and then I have two assistants. So that's my team. We have someone from the medical team that comes and they often will be with a social worker. Uh, there may be a nurse. It depends on, I believe we have six vans and we have six zones that the medical team are assigned. There's particular days of the week and times that they go to these zones. And so since they've been doing this since 2018, the community is familiar with the times in which they come. Um, they get familiar with the faces that are involved. 
and it becomes whoever makes the point of contact, they address their immediate needs. And then sometimes, you know, the person who has initial contact, they may sense the person has more needs than they're acknowledging, but they'll start where the person says, like they may say, for example, I have a cut that's not healing. That may be the entry point. And they'll say, sure, I'll take a look at that cut for you. But in the process of um, looking at the cut, they're asking them questions. And uh, do you have enough to eat? Do you feel safe? Someone that you need to talk to, we have that support available. A lot of times the conversation is we address your problem initially, but we open the door to the other things that we can do for you. And then for a lot of them, because there is distrust, they may ask their other folks in the encampment, are they safe? Are they okay? And then from there, they will engage the services that we offer. So we have case managers, we have CHWs, and we have nurse practitioners, social workers, and the team is pretty consistent, but all services aren't always together. They have their huddles where they communicate what's going on on each zone. And then it, I believe they present to those zones as the greater team determines where the needs are in their zones. And then they tell us where they want us to go. We split up our day that we're in one location in the AM and another location in the PM. And we go by their lead. So they tell us where the need is based on, again, these entry points when they engage the patients initially. And then as they tell them, you know, I have an ache or I can't eat or it'd be nice to have some teeth, that's how they are led to us. So they're people who really want the services. They're, we're not forcing ourselves on individuals. That's a great approach. Yeah. It, it maximizes engagement. So. <laughs> yeah. And it really leverages, you know, the partnership with the street medicine program. Thank you for that wonderful overview of your program. I'd like to give an opportunity for Jocelyn to share about the Botanical Bus. Thank you. I like to start with the who, the people who are providing services at the Botanical Bus and also the people that we're serving in the Botanical Bus. One of our lead promotoras says in every opening circle, todos somos medicina, we're all medicine here. And so there, and we're, you, we form a circle before we start. And so we really start with that foundational idea that um, the medicine and the care services are by and for the community. And, um, you know, foundational to health equity is the idea that practitioners are equals to the clients and we are learning and healing with each other um, in the in the space that we're creating together. And our clients are 98% Latina Indigenous people. Um, that's how they identify. And Latina Indigenous people in Sonoma County experience staggering health disparities um, that are sustained by current uh, social and economic inequities. Uh, and our social, our services are mobile uh, because of residential segregation uh, in Sonoma County. Uh, our health services are bilingual uh, because four in 10 of the 29,000 undocumented immigrants residing in Sonoma County do not speak English. And I think most importantly, our health services are bicultural because positive mental health outcomes can be better achieved through 
valuing cultural wealth. So essentially, we show up um, where we meet people, our clients, where they are at, uh, at vineyard work sites or at uh, established family service centers that serve as cultural hubs and where referrals can be made into um, case managers um, for, you know, housing, food and um, extended mental health supports. Uh, and the services that we provide um, are also guided by uh, community, honestly, more so than community need, community strength and need, you know, together, both are real. Um, but I think that what makes our services unique is that they, I mean, they're founded by the community and also they center herbalism and nutrition as cultural wealth, as places where our clients can feel proud and alive and thriving in a medical system where they do not, where they lack access. Um, so, a, a, you know, a, a large majority of our clients do not have trust of the medical system. A large majority of our clients have transportation limitation. 89% of our clients are Spanish speaking. Uh, and so there's real barriers to accessing care. Um, and on, on the other side, there's this, this heart of knowledge um, when it comes to taking care of ourselves. Um, and I think that's like that humanizing moment of that we have the power to take care of ourselves in our centering of herbalism and nutrition. And so when you arrive at the Botanical Bus Clinic, Saturdays at family service centers, um, regular service centers, um, kind of like Dr. Parker was saying, kind of organically, the community knows where to find us. Um, we've been in operation for about four years now and our schedules remain the same. We start with an opening circle um, that is led by a community health worker and co-founder of the organization, um, honoring the, the knowledge of everyone present and the power of everyone present, and also honoring them for the courage it takes to show up to take care of yourself. And we move from that into a clinical intake um, that's guided by that uh, opening circle. And then uh, clients can self-select the services that they need for the day. They'll rotate through care. Everyone gets a chance to be seen one-on-one. -on -one, uh, and then they'll also be a part of group therapies. So when you arrive to the clinic, you can choose from a number of therapies, services that we're offering that day. Uh, one of the group therapies that we offer is called Presente para Nutrirnos, which is translates to present to nourish us. Uh, this program is run by Juliana Jimenez, uh, Indigenous woman from Oaxaca and certified community health worker, uh, and Norma Rico, who is also an immigrant woman from Mexico. And um, together, uh, well, Juliana uh, comes from a, a lineage of people who she's lost many of her family and community to type 2 diabetes. And she really came to me uh, eight years ago with this idea and also an, uh, a very strong drive um, to impact change in her indigenous community around type 2 type diabetes prevention and care. Uh, and Norma has type 2 diabetes herself, um, and she's really proud of her, her management of the disease. Uh, and so the two of them, together with support of a nurse practitioner named Naya Barreto in the community, another indigenous woman from Oaxaca, um, have developed programming that center indigenous 
whole accessible foods. Um, so July is the month for nopales, which is the prickly pear cactus. Uh, and in Presente para Nutrinos, this is a group therapy. Um, we usually see eight people in these therapies, um, and then they kind of move through these care stations. Um, so eight people will sit in a circle. Juliana and Norma will guide the discussion. Um, they bring the food prepared with the recipe. So this month has been all about nopales salad, um, and which is a delicious, uh, very nutrient dense uh, food um, that is known in the Latina community for helping control blood sugar levels. Uh, and so everyone tries the food and there's a lot of storytelling um, that happens, memories of when the food was prepared in community and also recipe sharing. Um, we always distribute recipe cards and so it, it really it's a place to connect and celebrate foods that are good for us and that have, um, you know, part of our cultural, um, but really centering the traditional food and celebrating the traditional food. Uh, next month, we move on to corn, maize, um, then we move into guajes, which is like a native flaxseed that you can find on trees in Sonoma County, on to, to sweet squash. Uh, so that's one of the therapies. Um, Another therapy is um, present, uh, reposo en respiración, which is um, taking repose in your breath, um, also led by um, an in indigenous woman and campesina. Uh, and it's really about the power of, that we all have to breathe and to feel better in that breath. And you can see there's a vein of behavioral health that runs through everything we do. Everything is done with a trauma-informed approach, 69% of our clients report upon arriving high levels of nervousness, sadness, depression, anxiety, insomnia that interrupt their everyday activities. So we're really taking that into account in all the services that we provide. Uh, and then one-on-one -on -one therapies are provided. We are about 50% staff practitioners and community health workers and 50% volunteer practitioners. These are licensed, certified uh, nurse, nurse practitioners, massage therapists, acupuncturists, somatic therapists, clinical herbalists, clinical nutritionists who come and offer half an hour care sessions in private areas for, for clients. Uh, and I think as Dr. Parker mentioned, that moment of sitting down with someone one-on-one, -on -one. the group therapies are their own power um, and community building uh, impact. Um, but, but really each client needs to be seen one-on-one. -on -one. And that is sometimes an opportunity for them to, maybe there's a wound that isn't healing, but that's going to be an opportunity to be able to, in an intuit way, explore, uh, you know, the full, full picture um, the whole scope of this person's wellness. Um, and we do, we come in a bus. <laughs> um, it's a, a extended Ford Transit um, that's been built out into an herbal apothecary. So we come with over a hundred dried herbs that have been um, donated, vetted, um, and also grown at a nearby organic farm, which is another really cool program we started last year. And tinctures, over 80 simple tinctures and we, in that, in that pharmacy, herbal pharmacy, we make tea blends, we make tinctures, uh, contraindications are taken very seriously. Our clinical herbalists have extensive, sometimes upwards of 20 years um, working in street medicine. And also in, our pharmacy was set up by a Sutter emergency room a nurse. And so 
we take it very seriously, uh, you know, how herbs and medications interact. A lot of our clients are on, on medication. And so they can get the tinctures and the teas. We also do bath blends. Uh, so people can leave with, you know, salt and lavender. We do inhale, uh, essential oil inhalers um, for, for allergies. Uh, a, a lot of our remedies are for mental health. That's usually where we start is with helping people uh, manage anxiety and, and depression. That's wonderful. Thank you for that overview. I did want to follow up, Jocelyn, with a question around, well, first of all, I'm hearing lots of integration and the success of integrating um, on various levels for both of your programs. Jocelyn, I wanted to know if you could share a little bit more about how you partner with uh, community health centers. I know that you've worked pretty closely with West County Health Center and are also looking to expand partnerships. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what that partnership looks like and, and your hopes for expanding those partnerships. Absolutely. We definitely are upstream. So we are going to be at the Vineyard Work site, maybe seeing clients that have never accessed the healthcare system here. Um, we, have, we see H2A visa holders who are here for six months at a time working um, the crush, the vineyard harvest period. And, you know, sometimes very rurally where they, they maybe, I can think of a specific example where we were out at a vineyard work site and we were there with a registered nurse who was providing foot care. And we saw a client who had diabetes and they needed follow-up care um, for, you know, condition with their feet. Um, and we, and that was a perfect moment. And we were out in West County where, you know, we realized like, gosh, we, it is our responsibility if we're going to be working upstream with clients that aren't accessing the healthcare system to connect these clients into referrals to the community health centers. We're taking that commitment seriously because we 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 know that we can't be out offering care without providing warm referrals. And so, you know, I think that that it's more than handing them a business card that says, you know, habla español, we speak Spanish. Here's the phone number. But there's, I think, Dr. Parker also mentioned like there's a tr there's trust. Trust is a commodity um, that needs to be invested in, uh, and that's really what we're doing with you know putting the bicultural aspect of our care in front of everything else, having intake and programs led by indigenous Latina campesinos and campesinas. So when in that instance where the person who has diabetic foot infection out in the fields is like, no, 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 I'm not taking off my shoes. <laughs> and, you know, they can say, you know, they can, the the, the woman who runs our, our the clinic coordinator's name is Yatsiri Galvan. Um, she's a dreamer, uh, an indigenous uh, Latina woman uh, and daughter of campesinos. There's nobody else who can communicate to him that it's okay. Like she can. She can tell him it's okay and he's safe and he can take his shoes off. And then from there, what we're looking for uh, in this room and this and the people who are listening to this podcast is, you know, access coordinators who can be present or can be a phone call away in that moment who can book appointment for him. Um, and so that we've we've opened the door um, with this investment in culturally centered care and trust 
and also the acknowledgement that our services are limited. Um, mobile services are limited. We show up and we leave. Um, there's an incredible strength in that and opening the door and meeting people exactly where they're at. But we do drive away. We're going to come back. <laughs> you know, we have our schedule, but we do drive away. And some people need to be seen right away at the community health center. And we really want to tighten our network and invest in that. And actually, Aliados Health is investing in us to be able to build that network. Um, we're going to be working more with West County Health Centers, also Santa Rosa Community Health. Um, but we really welcome partnership with um, Sonoma Valley Community Health Centers as well. They actually, Mari Carmen and the Community Health Worker Network there, they were there when we founded this organization. You know, they were there um, to say, let's do this. Um, so I think it's just leaning in further to strengthen the referral networks. That's incredible. Thank you, Jocelyn, for that incredible overview and for sharing about the program and, and your hopes for continued expansion in partnerships with health centers. And um, speaking on expansion, um, I wanted to ask Dr. Parker if she could share a little bit more about expanding the dental uh, street medicine program. It sounds like there will be more programs, more opportunities next year, or it's happening this year around expanding this uh, type of service in conjunction with the street medicine program, or are there plans to? No, so we've been in West Oakland since we started. But there was always a request to come to Berkeley, and we just didn't have the, you know, all of us, well, maybe not all of us, but we struggle with support staff. And mm -hmm. while the need is, I'm sure the need is in every county to some degree, it's just having the staff to expand. And so that's kind of what has prevented us from expanding into Berkeley. So we're so we're trying to mimic where our street medicine is um, because we've sort of perfected how to approach the issue. And so now that we've kind of gotten some stability with um, staffing, now we're going next month, we're going to alternate our Thursdays one week in Oakland and one week in Berkeley. So it'll be exciting to expand into Berkeley. And and you would think the services may not be needed in Berkeley, but you'd be surprised. <laughs> you know, People's Park is a very populated encampment of folks that are unhoused. The reasons may be different, but they're in the same space. Right? So... Definitely. Thank you for sharing on that. Um, I'd like to take a moment because I think part of, you know, what we want to learn is if a health center wants to either expand their partnerships with uh, mobile medicine programs like Botanical Bus or um, establish a street medicine dental program um, like the one at Lifelong, what is like some advice that you would be able to provide or lessons learned about um, the existing programs and and I think Dr. Parker, um, you've been able to attain some significant uh, grants and I just think it would be great if you could impart some knowledge about like funding streams and um, and or sustainability of of a dental service within a mobile medicine program. You know, for any business, what helps keep you sustainable 
what helps a business be successful is the predictability and the consistency. And um, with the population that we're serving, it's not, they're not as predictable. And where we may have a schedule of folks who it looks like we'd make budget if everything works out that particular day, but um, there are just so many variables that generally it doesn't work out that way. So initially when we started, we were going every Thursday to the encampments with street medicine, but we found initially people showed up, we were super busy, and then after about a month and a half, the numbers started to drop off. And um, if you're not totally grant funded, it can become a problem. Um, if you're grant funded, it gives you a lot of opportunity to be creative and to try new things. But when you're not, um, you then have to make decisions. So we ended up pulling back and only going every other week. Um, and that was probably within the first six months. We went from every week to every other week. And I think some things begin to happen. We're dealing with human beings and human nature is people start taking things for granted. They know you show up every week. They'll say, and, and there are people who will have an appointment. They'll come to the van and they'll go, well, are you coming back next week? Okay, well, I'll come back next week, but they're on my schedule for today. So, you know, human nature is we tend to, we can take things for granted. So I do think there's strategy in maybe not making yourself so readily available because people think you can afford to not be productive. If they know that you come and you're not coming back for until when, I think people value your services more. And I would start, I would definitely partner with, I wouldn't, I wouldn't start off just offering dental services. I think that there's strength in partnering. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. I think partnering with people who already have established a relationship in a community is a safer way to go because the trust is there. And then as long as you can maintain that same level of trust, it's a win. And that, you know, your schedule is consistent. But even if it's spread out, you consistently come the first Monday or Sunday or whatever your day is, that you come consistently. I think that's really important. Um, and then the service that you provide is really coming from a true place of care and, and you continue that trust. Um, the grant that I received was really to bring unrepresented folks, particularly Latin and African-American students, which tend not to be in the dental schools in the Bay Area. And so there are a lot at Howard. So that's my alma mater. And so um, part of bringing folks that are reflective of the communities they serve can be impactful for patients. I know fundamentally people want good care and it, they really, who's delivering it, it doesn't matter. But there is something about if 
if I could speak Spanish, there's a level of trust that patients will have for me versus if I did not that that not that the care would be any different, but for the same reasons why Jocelyn talks about the reflection of the community and being able to speak Spanish and the interaction and the understanding is better in your first language. And so um, part of that grant was to bring students here. So they do come with me on the van and that tends to be one of their most memorable experiences. So we hope that we can convince some of them to come to the Bay Area and help us do the work that we do. That's the impetus behind why we have the grant and what we hope the grant will, will do for us. It's a hard sell to get people to move to the Bay Area though, because it's so expensive. But I think it speaks to critical partnerships as you think about, you know, mobile medicine and street medicine programs and thinking about how programs are funded, or these types of programs are funded. So for Jocelyn, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about, you know, how your program is funded and how um, about sustainability models for your program. Absolutely. Yeah, critical partnerships. <laughs> I think that over the last four years, I mean, 10 since we really got the work started in community, but four since we launched the clinical program, we've really leaned into partnerships with family service centers because it was aligned with our programming and being able to, you know, offer referrals into wraparound care and case managers. Um, and now with community health centers also wanting to lean into those partnerships because it's aligned with our programming, but also because I really believe that we can also strategically uh, apply for foundation grants together. Um, we are majority funded by foundation grants. Uh, we do provide fee for service, um, but that fee is for the organization that's hosting the bus. It's donation-based sliding scale. No one turned away for lack of funds. Um, so we bring in a little bit of funds through client services, um, but it's very, very, it's very, it's minimal. But the fee-for-service model is actually um, growing probably the most rapidly, um, though we're majority funded by foundation at this time, but we provide wellness workshops. So the clinic is the most robust program, but we provide wellness workshops, um, which are a little bit more um, accessible fee-for-service. And we provide those at school districts, libraries, um, and also vineyards. So it's fee-for-service at vineyard work sites. And so we this week we've been to two, um, provide two wellness workshops at vineyard work sites. Um, and those are all fee-for-service. We invoice for those. But I think the way that I see sustaining this work, it's I'm, I'm excited about opportunity because we're not, you know, we don't build you know, through CalAIM for, for any of this, you know, majority foundation grants that like partnership with a healthcare plan or with um, MDs who from the community health centers who could come out and provide services and oversee a clinic that we could be, we could be billing for those services in that way to set, to complement the foundation grants that, that are mostly health equity uh, foundation grants. Latina and Indigenous people are providing our services and we're providing them for our community because that's what we're resourced to do. And when we put that forward in the beginning, uh, set us up to provide programming that was, you know, 
that we were resourced to provide <laughs> um, and also to apply for health equity grants because it was it was really at the core of the work that we're doing. And we do, it's different than the services that Dr. Parker is providing. I'm so glad that we are all out there in our communities doing this, um, the work that is specialized for the communities that we're serving. So, you know, specialized for the unhoused community. Uh, we're specialized to serve Latina indigenous community campesinos. And in our community, we can we we can pre-register clinics. Uh, it's usually by phone and text message technologies. Um, there's not a lot there's not a lot of um, computer access or literacy through email. Um, so we're picking up the phone a lot. We have a team of community health workers that are on on the phone a lot. Um, talking with clients, um, but we do, our, all our clinics are booked to capacity. So every Saturday we see 24 to 40 clients. 20% don't show up, um, but we book, We this year we got savvy about it and we book 20% more spots. And so we do, we don't really have a problem with people showing up, which I think is a combination of, you know, a privilege of being housed and have and a lot of our community actually having us having cell phones that we can text message them on and there's also family networks and community networks that are really strong you know the healthcare there may not be access to healthcare system resources or trust in healthcare systems but there's these really deep networks um in campesino communities and so our programs grew really fast because one person would come and I mean, nobody has to, like getting a massage is feels really good. <laughs> and they go home and they tell their friends like, oh my gosh, I just got this service. And then it's, it's, it grew really fast. Like they, they next back, they would come back and bring their friends and their neighbors and their families and lots of, you know, lots of wives insisting their husbands come and then the husbands telling their brothers they have to come too. And so it, it, it like those familial networks in the community we serve um, is part of the power um, in, in working within the community we work in. And also I, I, I definitely think part of the power of um, the programs that we're running. And I think if, if, you, if you're thinking about starting a mobile clinic, you just have to invest in those networks um, before you actually provide starting, you know, um, providing services. That is really great advice from both of you and doing such incredible work. And I wanna pause to see if there's any questions um, from our live audience. Great, and if you do have questions, you can put them in the chat. Um, I know we're nearing time, and so I just wanted to give both of you uh, just an additional opportunity if there was something that you wanted to share and um, we didn't get a chance because I have so many questions for you still in addition. Any additional pieces or insights, lessons learned that you'd like to share? about your program. I can add something. I think that I just wanted to name that this time for community health workers, I think COVID really highlighted health disparities that pre-existed COVID, um, but you know, COVID deepened those health disparities. And I think that this is the time to invest in community health workers. And it's happening, like how exciting that we get to be a part of this moment where community health workers are valued for their unique skill set, and that they are 
connected to the community. They are, they, they've invested in the, their, you know, the commodity of trust and they, they can strengthen those networks. And for us, it's been such an honor to be a part of that, the growth of that profession in Sonoma County. And I, yeah, I just, I feel like I might not have said loud enough earlier that like community health workers around the world. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. And I appreciate both of your uh, time and uh, the work that you're doing in the communities that we're serving. And I just think it's incredible how you um, have successfully um, integrated so many different services and leveraged your partnerships and expanded your critical partnerships and in order to continue to do this really amazing work. And so I see a comment from Rachel in the chat, really amazing and inspiring work. Thank you both so much for sharing about what you're doing. We appreciate your time. And uh, thank you to our live audience for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I see Rachel on the line and she's leading a lot of our CHW work. So thank you, Rachel, for joining. Thanks for having me here and thanks for sharing and looking forward to um, continuing the conversation. Thank you for joining the QI Chatroom podcast. We appreciate you, our listeners, for joining us today. If you have suggested topics for future episodes, please email them to apena at aliadoshealth.org. And please follow us Aliados Health on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye for now. Till next time on the QI chat room.